Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. On today's episode, we're speaking with Marcello Botoli, co-founder and managing partner of EVCP Growth Advisors. EVCP is a boutique private equity firm dedicated to investing in promising consumer lifestyle brands. When you look at Marcello's career and his success, it's clear that his experience would be an incredible asset to any management team seeking growth capital. Marcello has led remarkable brands, including his position as chairman and CEO of Louis Vuitton, his restructuring and turnaround of the great American brand Samsonite, and his directorship positions with many internationally recognized names. For every interview, I dive into guests' history to identify the points in which we can discuss. For Marcello, that history is just too deep for us to pack everything into a 60-minute conversation. That said, you're going to hear a lot about how he ascended to the top leadership roles of some of the world's most iconic brands, how he managed and led through some of the world's most difficult times, including September 11th and the 2008 financial crisis. And given the turmoil we're facing in our current economies, his experience and advice couldn't be more timely. We also talk about his fund, EVCP. In all honesty, my initial thoughts were that A man of Marcello's success would care little about relationships and mentorship, but instead be more focused on prestige and economic returns. Frankly, I couldn't have been more wrong. As you'll hear, Marcello's mandate for investing includes a requirement that he and his partners can invest on simple terms and be allowed in to pull up their sleeves and actually help build remarkable companies alongside the entrepreneurs and managers they're investing in. We discuss much more, so there's a ton to take away from this episode. I'd also like to say thank you to J.D. David over at MJ Hudson for making this interview possible. It's very much appreciated. So, enjoy the show. On the line, I have Marcello Botoli, who is the co-founder and managing partner of EVCP Growth Equity. Marcello, thank you very much for making the time. Thank you, Corey. I'm very happy that, that we were finally able to arrange this interview. After doing my research, there's a, a lot of experience that we can dive into. But I think the best way to, to frame up our conversation is to perhaps hand it over to you to get an introduction and a brief on your career and where you are now with EVCP. What do you say I'll hand it over to you and we'll, we'll start with that? That is perfect. Thank you. I'm what I would define as a investor coming from the operational side. I became an investor relatively late in my career. I started my career as an executive in uh, fast-moving consumer goods at Procter & Gamble, uh, being a consultant with BCG, became a senior executive at Rekid Benkiser for 10 years, went through a few things there, and then became started running companies and became the CEO of Louis Vuitton, the French luxury goods maker, 
in Paris. And subsequently, I did my first private equity deal with one of my good friends and sponsors, the founder of Eris. And uh, we acquired Samsonite, one of the greatest American brands, and actually had a good run um, over the following three and a half to four years before reselling the brand. I've been the CEO also of Pandora, the Danish jewelry maker, which has been a very interesting experience. Lots of trouble at the beginning, turn around the company, but very, very enriching. And then I became an investor properly with uh, Advent International, with whom I worked for five years, one of the great private equity firms in the world. I learned enormously from them. And then in 2016, I decided to create my first investment vehicle which uh, was dedicated to a specific strategy, which we sort of elaborated and created over the the past years. And we're now here at TVCP Fund 2, seven portfolio investments, and an exciting time. Yeah, really. Wow. When you speak about exciting times, I find it really interesting. I mean, the, the research I did on you in advance of our interview painted an extraordinary picture of of an accomplished career. And, and part of that was your work with Samsonite coming into what was a very troubled company at the time, your leadership of Louis Vuitton when we were coming out or going through or coming out of 9-11. Um, I think there's perhaps some really interesting learning experiences we could touch on there given what is happening with COVID and, and the world we're in now. Can we start there and talk about some of the experiences you had in those difficult times? What advice would you have for helping guide your investments and and, uh, entrepreneurs right now? Absolutely. Well, look, you know, I've been around for some years and hence I've been exposed to all sorts of events like many of my colleagues in the industry. Every traumatic event like 9-11, like the 2008-2012 crisis, like what is happening today, COVID, comes, hits and goes. So I would say that the first learning here is to say, this is brutal, this is global, this is one of the worst things, probably the worst thing that has happened to all of us since World War II, but it's not here to stay. It will go, it's a matter of time before a cure is found, and it's a matter of time before a vaccine is found. So I think what's important when you run a company or a business is to keep the north and recognize the fact that whilst these are clearly time of hardship, things will change and things will improve. I think the people that keep their north are the ones that will be successful. Hmm. As an investor, there is another aspect, which is you know, time of great hardship. They also offer great opportunities. And this is a, certainly a time from which major opportunities will emerge for those that will know how to find them and seize them. Hmm. With that, I mean, that, that north or that north star from a leadership example, what were some of the the experiences or some of the dialogue you would have had with your team during these times? I mean, especially, I mean, perhaps the, the first difficult times you were going through as a CEO, can you re- remember back to the any specific experiences there where, yeah, the dialogue you had to have with your team? Definitely. Look, my, my first, uh, let's call it traumatic experience from a business standpoint has been 9-11, which hit me as I was, you know, I'd been a few months the CEO of Louis Vuitton. Clearly, we've all been in a state of shock because this was unprecedented, totally unexpected, and just coming out of the blue. 
I remember the conversation we were having at that point in time, both with the you know, the MH group of which we were part, as well as our team, which was to try and figure out where is this going to lead us? What is going to happen? And how are we going to prepare and react to it? And so the major discussion about trying to anticipate the implication in the short and midterm of what had happened. One of the major implications that we clearly identified very, very quickly was a change in consumption patterns and a decrease in consumption, mainly in some specific areas of the business. At Louis Vuitton, we were largely dependent on uh, travel retail, so particularly Japanese travel retail, which represented a very significant portion of our business. It was obvious from day one that that part of the business was going to disappear instantly. Mm -hmm. Japanese are some of the most rewarding consumers in the world, but also some of the most conservative ones. And in time like this, they simply stopped traveling. And so that was 15, 20% of our business that was evaporating. So the key question for us was to figure out what do we do and how do we try to recuperate there? And we actually figured out and reasoned and took a bet. And the reason it was very simple. You know, Japanese don't travel. They will save money, money that they will not spend traveling, and they will use that money to do something else. And basically, we decided to increase our efforts in domestic Japan, uh, making the bet that Japanese consumers would have renounced traveling but would have continued spending this time at home. And in fact, that is what has happened. We took away our focus from travel retail and focused much more onto domestic markets. And in fact, we ended up being the only luxury goods company in the world still going through 9-11 with growth in spite of turmoil that has happened. Hmm. I take two things from there. One is the, the calculated bets you made there to help navigate through that. And the second is, well, I think I want to bring it into to the point of Samsonite and moving on there. But before I do that, can I just ask quick, what captured your interest and, and commitment to the world of consumer brands? I mean, that's where your career has been and, and in building some of the most iconic brands. But what had you commit to that? Well, you know, consumer brands is effectively the relationship that people have with their way of living, with their daily life. And, you know, they can be more or less daily. Food is a very daily item. Luxury goods is a little bit less daily and more exceptional. But at the end of the story, brands are emotional relationship between consumers and objects. It's, it's that little trade in between consumers, human beings, and products that makes the whole difference. You can buy a product or you can buy a brand. The whole difference is the emotional attachment that you have to one or the other. And I think having that emotional attachment for a marketeer like myself, as my origin is in marketing, is the dream because it allows you to basically play and create that magic that makes great brands successful with consumers. And that's, I guess, I want to take this to the next step as I'm thinking through your career. You went from Louis Vuitton and over to Samsonite, where, as I understand, that was your real first private equity turnaround play. That is correct. You use that yeah. as a like a reinvention of that brand and, and also a calculated bet. So can we dive in there? Yes. 
definitely. I I joined Samsung in 2004, and Samsonite was still in trouble in the doldrums because of 9-11. As we were saying before, the first thing that happened when 9-11 hit is people, not only Japanese, but in general, people stopped traveling. When people stop traveling, you can easily imagine what happens to the luggage business and the luggage industry. You stop selling. And so that has been a massive devastation of the business. The company was in previous hands, highly leveraged, and simply was not going to make it. So with three funds, Aries, uh, Ontario Teachers, and Bain Capital, we recapped the company and took control of it. I invested myself, and I became the CEO of the company. And you know, we sort of sat down and tried to figure out what to do with that. We found ourselves with a company with very low sales. We find ourselves, more importantly, not only with low sales, but also with a company where consumers had lost that notion of brand that we were discussing before. And that's probably the most important thing that we change. People were not buying Samsonite because of what I would define as an active choice, but because much more so because of what I would define as a passive choice. And let me explain what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. An active choice is somebody that chooses a product or a feature because he wants that. A passive choice is somebody that because some, some other minor reason may be inherited ends up buying a product. And let me tell you what I, what, what I mean. Samsonite, probably in your house, your parents, your grandparents had Samsonite luggage or Samsonite bags. That's what happened to me. I had uh, Samsonite products that were coming one or two generations back. So when I was thinking, like many consumers, about buying a piece of luggage, I was going out and buying Samsonite simply because it was the sort of generic name. Mm. You know, it's been around many years. It's a good brand. I'll just go out and buy. But ultimately, if I found something else in a promotion, I'd probably buy something else. So that's what I call a passive choice. Yeah. That's I, something the way, where you don't control you don't control your own destiny. Yeah. The, what, what I what I saw was a colleague of yours who said that Samsonite went be, from your leadership went from being a brand of luggage my dad used into an internationally recognized lifestyle brand. And that transition between active or passive and active is what I hear. That is exactly it. Is the whole point and what we tried to do was recreate that excitement and pride of a consumer that chooses a product and a brand. And, so, and you know, when you talk about consumer products and brands, you talk about the qualities of the product first and above all. So when you went to restructure that company and you approached Ontario Teachers Pension, Bain Capital, and, and your other partner there in this deal... What was that like? What was the narrative going forward to them and the pitch? Because they would have had to take a a relatively large and and risky investment that arguably probably wouldn't fit traditionally in their wheelhouse of investing. Did you go in and say, hey, we're going to take this from a passive to an active brand? Or how, how did that evolve? No, I think, you know, the three companies, the three funds that I'm talking about are all very successful, smart investors. So they knew exactly that they had a great opportunity to acquire one of the most iconic and best American brands in history. Let's never forget that. That albeit it was tarnished, albeit it was not vivid anymore, it was still a great brand. 
So they knew that they were doing something great because they were buying very cheap something that was of great value. The key thing that was missing maybe, and that's where you know a CEO has to step in and has to bring his light, is what are we going to do to actually bring it back to shine? And that is the part where that is the difference between investor and managers. Ultimately, investors are dedicated to spotting great opportunity and supporting and catalyzing entrepreneurs or management teams to give their best and give them all the create that environment that allows them to flourish. So I was very lucky to have three exceptional investors that have seconded us and that allowed us to basically turn around the company. And what was the what was that planning like? And I want to get into the mindset of your leadership. When you were able to harness the, the, the power of that capital from your investors and you came in and said to Samsonite and to the employees and, and to every stakeholder there, we're going to turn this thing around. How did you make a calculated bet and how did you choose to deploy that capital? What was that process? What was that leadership mindset? Sure. Well, the first thing that we did was actually to take away the heat from the CEO and CFO seat. We had an outstanding high junk bond where we were paying, I don't remember exactly now, but probably 12, 13% interest rate. So effectively, whatever work we were doing at the time was simply serving the purpose of paying the interest. So the first thing we did, we actually went out, tendered those bonds, reissued new bonds. And, and created a much lighter financial situation that allowed us to basically do something on the brand. The second thing we did was to recognize that any brand is fed and any value of a brand is fed by the products or the services it's dealing about. And so it was time to recreate the excitement about the products that were called Samsonite to bring those consumers back to what we defined before as an active purchase. And so it started with design, number one thing. This is a business, you know, in luggage, it's a very simple story. you got two rules. The first rule is the smaller the piece and the closer to your body, the more important the emotional side of the story. The larger the piece, the farther away from your body, the more important the sturdiness and the physical functional qualities of the product. Hmm. That's rule number one. And if you understand that, you understand also that there are the two components. You need to create great products and you need to create a storytelling that makes them exciting. We looked out into the marketplace. We look at the heritage of the brand. And we basically came out and create this brand called Samsonite Black Label that was a sort of higher-end, uh, more design-driven product that acted as a locomotive for the whole brand. It has never been the intent to create a separate brand or to create something different. And it has never been the intent to transform Samsonite into a different type of product. But this was the perfect locomotive to pull the rest of the business up and make it emerge from a market where everybody was selling the same thing and telling the same story. We created this excitement, and that allowed us to initiate a virtuous circle. Growing sales, growing margins, piece of the margins to the bottom line, other piece of the margins invested in the business. And then you refeed the loop, and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah, I, I, tons of questions are coming to me, and I, and I, I don't Go want ahead. to interrupt, but I... Uh, <laughs> I ahead, please. 
I'm curious when you stepped in, you created a new brand and you, and you had some rules, the two rules of, of, of small and large with the luggage. When it came to creating that story, that narrative and marketing it, how did you choose to go about getting that story into the market? And, and then were the rules of thumb? Did you look and you say, okay, we've got, we're targeting a hundred million in sales and 30% is going to go to marketing. Did you have kind of rules of thumb that you work with and are those still applicable today? Yeah, I think, I definitely think it's basically your dashboard is what you want to do. You know, it's, it's like being a pilot on a plane and you got a few clocks and a few watches that you mm-hmm. need to keep an eye on try and understand where you're going. You know, we had clear in mind what we wanted to do. We tested with the consumer to understand their reaction. We saw the reaction was positive. We initiated this virtual circle. And then it was all about generating top-line growth, improving margins, investing half, the other half goes to the bottom line. That is a sort of healthy principle. And I think it's interesting what, what you're asking me about this because one of the big changes that we're seeing nowadays in today's world, in the world of investing, and I think mm. COVID is in there for something, is that the world and the era of companies that can afford to go out and lose money for years and years and years and still call for incredibly high investors' valuation mm-hmm. is probably coming to an end, at least for a period of time. People today, investors today, are looking at companies that make money or have a clear potential to make money in the short term. The Mm. story of big losses, money in the long term, where long term is not defined, is losing steam. And I think that's very important. You know, something that's interesting there is I've seen a lot of consumer products who have almost embraced the Silicon Valley raise a boatload of money, put together a hugely expensive and far-reaching consumer brand and consumer marketing program and run with a wild valuation. In one episode, we talked. Uh, I talked to a gentleman about Casper mattresses, which is mm-hmm. effectively a foam mattress with a wonderful brand experience wrapped around it. And once they were it went to market as a public company, they shaved something like half a billion dollars off their, their valuation because the market didn't accept their valuation and, and what they were able to build. So perhaps that fits into what you're saying there. Yeah, I think there's a part of that. But I think, you know, both private investor as well as public investor are recognizing that ultimately the skyrocketing valuations without being grounded in the capabilities to generate cash, which is fundamentally what value companies is about, it's over. I mm. think it's over. It's it probably still there and it will remain there in some tech sectors because of the nature of their cycle. Mm. But certainly when it comes to consumer, we are seeing a big change into that. And I guess that there is this notion that ultimately what, what is a brand what is a brand value? It's fundamental is capabilities to generate cash in the long run. And it's in the long run, but the long run is simply a succession of short runs. So if you don't make money within a reasonable amount of time, problems are going to come. And yeah. that's when companies shed valuations and get re-rated. I'm curious about when we talk about time and, and still talking through Samsonite, I think it was a four-year period before you were uh, you came in and you were able to turn the company around and saw, I think it was a $1.7 billion sale. And right. 
that is a very fast turnaround. How were you able to to lead and, and get that much speed and, and momentum? What principles do you use to, to engage and, and motivate your team to move with such, uh, such speed? I would say there's probably, uh, there's something that clearly worked in our favor. As I mentioned before, Samsonite was and is one of the best American brands of all time. So we had a fertile ground to play with. The second thing, obviously, as we got farther away from 9-11, people started to travel again. The market started to rebound. So we were riding a positive wave. Mm. That being said, we were relentless in implementing the changes that we decided to do. And I think what is important is that when you look at the you know, management style and how to run a company, I've never been a believer in creating huge long-term roadmaps with very detailed numbers at each stage of this road. Okay. I've always believed that in nowadays world where things are so fluid and so changing, just think about what happened with COVID and nobody would have ever even imagined a year ago that we were, we would have been where we are today. What's important is to have a very clear ideas of a vision of where you want to bring your company in, say, 10 years from now. That's where we want to be with this brand and with this company. And then instead of trying to go into detail five years plan, let's focus on who does what, when, and how over the next 12 months, which is a controllable period. Hmm. And then that succession of 12 months is what makes a successful story in a short period of time. If you try and create long-term convoluted plans, very difficult. And very, you know, useless to be honest, because things are so changing nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will say, and and for the listeners, especially the entrepreneurs, that on your website you do have a section called the anatomy of a transaction, and you start to break some of this down. So I do encourage people to go and take a look on ebcp.com. I'm curious to go further after Samsonite, Louvitana, and Samsonite. You went on to take a number of directorship roles and advisory roles. And well, actually, before going in there, perhaps looking back, did you make any mistakes or what mistakes did you make in your career that you look back on that were perhaps the most pivotal and, and valuable to your, to your career and to, to the, the success you've had now? Well, look, I think like everybody, I've made my mistakes and they can be personal mistakes. They can be professional mistakes. They can be investment mistakes. All of us, you know, nobody's perfect. I think, you know, one of the possible mistakes that we've done on, actually, let's put it this way, and I don't want to sound presumptuous. The, this is a near miss to a big mistake. And, and it's an interesting story, though, that I think can be useful or interesting for your audience. When Excellent. it came to the sale of Samsonite, we, as, as I mentioned before, we had three funds and, and myself ultimately in the, in the decision seats. We had had a great run. We knew we had interest from the world out there because people were watching this this great brand, reviving. And so we started a discussion roughly three years into the process, into the investment on what is the right time to sell. And it was very interesting, and I won't go into name, but certainly I can say it for myself. Two of the three funds and myself were very keen to maintain the ownership of the brand because we could see long-term opportunities to continue growing this business as we were growing so fast. 
one of the other investors was actually had a different position. And his position, their position was simple. Guys, we're probably going to make four to five times our money on this investment. Let's not tempt luck and let's be disciplined and get out. And it was very, very interesting because we discussed, we had several discussions. And finally, they had been so persistent in their thesis that we all said, okay, let's go for it. And so we initiated the dual process with an IPO on one side and with a potential trade sale on the other side and ended up selling the business to a private equity fund. Literally one week after the documents for the sale were closed, Lehman went bust. And as hmm. you well remember, the world went upside down. The big My God, eh? Him, the, the, and that was you know, luck, but it was not luck. It was basically this one investor pushing very hard for us to keep discipline. To me, that was an enormous learning and an enormous near miss. Because if it was for me, I admit it gladly, I would have kept the company and I would have had probably to wait another five years before doing another successful sale, which obviously all the implication on the returns. But I think the big learning here is whatever you do, both in business, running a company, or being an investor, discipline is so important. Never get too greedy. Never test your luck too much. When you got to where you want or exceeded it, just stick to your plan and move on. Interesting. Man, there oh, there's so much, so many so many places we can go. And thank you for sharing that. I mean, what uh, who would have known, right? And and what timing? That's uh, that's remarkable. I want to come back to some some questions somewhat related to that, and and definitely about EVCP and, and the work you're doing there now. But can we talk about ESG and environmental social governance and how yeah. that's playing in a role into what you're doing and. And I'm, I'm curious, and perhaps uh, I don't want to be critical, but I, I'm always curious in how the world of consumer goods and, and consumerism plays a role in ESG or how they relate and what you see there and if it's even applicable. Yeah, definitely. I mean, ESG has, has clearly gone over the last few years from being a specificity of some companies or investor as, as turned into what is a necessity for companies to be in the marketplace and for investors when they make their choices. So today it's a must. It's not a philosophy. It's not. It's just a must way of living and a must way of respecting our planet and the human beings that compose our community. So we are very careful about that. I mean, I think the consumer world, when it comes to the environment, it, it, it's funny because you know people consider the consumer world as some of the worst wastes and some of the worst waste producers of all industry. The reality is we consume our products, and we're going to continue to consume our products. And the consumer world and consumer companies are being incredibly active to actually help the environment. I mean, the work that is being done today on plastic, when it comes to abolish plastic packaging and replace it with recyclable, non-plastic, non-toxic for the environment packaging. I mean, the the consumer industry is at the forefront of that. Why? Mm. Because we use so much of it. And so it's a necessity to create a real impact. So I think for us, screening those companies that have those commitments and that do have efforts and play in that arena is fundamental. Governance, same thing. Governance 
In fact, it's, I would almost call it an easier one in the sense that particularly when it comes to the world of private equity, governance is essential. You know, business ethics, governance criteria and rules, safety and security of financials. It's all basic things that need simply need to happen in any company. So it's not even a plus, it's a requirement to look at a company. And one of the first things that we do when you invest in a company is actually help those companies to structure what is often a patchy and inarticulated financial picture into something that has all the charisma of acceptability from a governance standpoint. Hmm. The social side, very important. We live in a community. The time where not thinking about the community and all the different stakeholders, but only focusing on the consumer is gone. As companies, and we as investors, the back companies, need to think about all of the aspects. Employees, employees are the key to reach your consumer. They are the key to the success of any company. So the way we treat and deal with those stakeholders, the, the way we treat and deal with the diversity, both at the level of sexes, men and women, races, all those diversity not only are a necessity nowadays, but they are an incredibly rich ground for growth. Great teams of people create great companies. Great companies grow fast. So it's ultimately a very simple equation. Hmm. And the rest of the environment, uh, in terms of social environment, in terms of how do we play within a community, you know, when you see how much displacement there has been and there is, and there is going to be, unfortunately, because of COVID, it is a necessity for all of us to help the community. It is a necessity not only to just be good citizens, but to actually think that there is tons of people out there that are not as lucky as we are, and they simply need to be helped. Can I ask, a, this just came to mind. I'm very curious on when you see brands who say that they're going to contribute or donate one or 2% of their, their revenue or their, their bottom line to whatever they choose to, to a social cause, sometimes I find that just falls quite flat. Whereas you were to contrast perhaps something like a Patagonia, who's deeply internalized certain social and environmental values, and I'm sure governance as well. What do you look for and, and what advice do you have for brands who want to, uh, to contribute and want to be, be outstanding? How can you differentiate yourself while still leading with a good social motive? Yeah, I think you know. I think you you actually said something very important, which is you really have three types of brands and companies today. You have those that simply miss the opportunity and miss the sense of what it means to contribute to the to the society around us. You have those that do it because it's you know either fashionable or investors require it, or we need to show that we're doing something, which is a little bit your case of donating a small percentage of your sales so that everybody's happy that it's being done. Mm. And you really have those that stand out because they have a commitment to a cause. They pick their cause. And any cause is good. There's no bad cause. But when it comes to social causes, anyone is good. They pick one and they have a consistent and complete program that not only is, consists of giving away 1%, 2% of the profits, but consists in mobilizing their employees to do something for that same cause. 
devote not just money, but also time and efforts to that cause. So create a comprehensive program. Those are the companies that normally succeed in creating a differentiating point that is recognized by consumer. Simply donating money, don't misunderstand me, it's a good thing, but it's not enough anymore. It needs to be more comprehensive. It needs to be more thought through. It needs to be more long-term and a true commitment to do something good. Hmm. Now, from from your position as a, as an investor, one of the things that I really like from what I understand is you are all about a partnership and being able to get in and roll up your sleeves and and, and participate in the deals, not just be here's your money, give me a return. Can we dive into EVCP and and what you're doing there? Yeah, look, there there are a few specificity of what we're doing, and I think you summarized some of them. First of all, we are absolutely single-mindedly focused in one only sector, which is consumer lifestyle. And, And the reason why we are is because, one, we believe there are tremendous amount of opportunities. And number two, this is the sector where I, myself, my partners are coming from. This is the sector that we know, and this is the sector where we can bring our experience and know-how to help our partners. The second thing that we do that is very important is we only work in the small and mid-cap arena. What we define small and mid-cap is basically we put to work our sweet spot is anywhere between 7 and 20 million euros of investment, so call it uh, 10, 25 million U.S. dollars. And, you know, you can obviously go bigger with our co-investors, but we focus in an area of the market where there is vitality. The most innovative companies, the fastest growing companies are all in this arena. And that's where if you spend the right time and if you really take the loop and come through the market, you can realize and and spot some exceptional pearls of Hmm. companies and entrepreneurs and can, so we dedicate ourselves that picture to that. for us. I'm very Same curious. Thing. Yeah, I yeah. mean, my background's been in, in financing and early stage technology companies. You know, you've got your uh-huh. your measurements, your your jargon, and all this kind of stuff that we, you know, how what's your user growth? What's your cost per acquisition? What's your LTV lifetime value? You need these kind of metrics we work with. Yep. All sorts of stuff like that. But I have no idea about the world of consumer goods. And I'd love to hear how you size up deals and, and, you know, what those pearls look like for you. So, first of all, all of the parameters that you just mentioned are parameters that we normally use in our business the same way as you use them in technology. Most important equation of any business is lifetime value over customer acquisition cost. And that remains paramount to any business, not just the technology business. But I would say... If you start from the qualitative side, the first thing that we look is difference. And it's a little bit the reflection of how we position ourselves in the market. The market nowadays, consumer markets are full of clones of the same idea and the same product. So for us, it's not about being one more or investing in one more product like many others are out there. Our strategy is to try and look for those little differentiated jewels, companies that have a product or a service that is different. It's different because it fulfills a different consumer need that was unspotted until now or because it represents an advantage versus what is out there. So looking at that positive difference for us is the first thing. 
we get excited when we find companies that have a different story and a different product to say, because that's that side of innovation is really the driver number one of fast growth in the marketplace. Hmm. And obviously, the question is whether it's a product or a service, and depending on the channel of distribution that you have, ultimately, how much money can I extract from a consumer and how much does it cost me to capture that consumer? And there we could have a whole long discussion, which you know, at some point in time we can have, about the focus that a lot of the industry has today on customer acquisition cost instead of putting focus onto the numerator of that fraction, which is lifetime value. But we can come back maybe at a later stage to this point. I'd love that. Um, sure. You know, maybe just to continue on a, a little bit the points of difference about EVCP, I yes, think the other, thing, the other thing that we do that differentiates us from many other companies, we only do minority investments, anywhere mm-hmm. up to 49% of a company. And there is a specific reason why we do that. There's no financial reason. It's, it's really, we see ourselves and we see what we do as a catalyst to provide exceptional entrepreneurs with great ideas and companies, the environment and the support to thrive. So we don't see ourselves, and that's why we're not control investor or buyout investor. We don't see ourselves as better to replace entrepreneur that have been successful. We see ourselves as those people that can groom, sponsor, coach, avoid mistakes, all of those things that create the perfect environment for those exceptional entrepreneurs to thrive. So we, we really see as partners instead of seeing ourselves as buyers of company. And that makes a whole lot of difference. And trust me, I can tell you I've been around for long enough to tell you that the same entrepreneur owning 49 or 51% of a company is a different animal. Hmm. It's a different animal because the fact of remaining in control of his company makes him go out of his way to truly be successful in what he does. And yeah. we see ourselves as those catalysts to help him do that. It's amazing what thing, uh, what two yep. percent can do, hey? It's amazing how a small difference can do in mentality. Having passed the bar or giving away control and not being on the driver's seat anymore changes somebody. That is interesting, by the way, because when you look at the work that we do when it comes to due diligence companies, we spend as much time due diligence people as well as due diligence company. And I'm not talking, you know, any sort of background check or stuff like that. I'm really talking spending time. You know, one, one specificity of our company, we never participate in processes of tenders or sales of companies that are done by bankers or similar. You know, my banker friends will hate me for that, but that's, <laughs> we prefer to actually create relationship with entrepreneurs well before they have a need for a sponsors and get to know each other. Help them, you know, graciously, because ultimately we believe in the principle of reciprocity. Help them graciously and use the time to get to know the company as well as to get to know the man or woman behind the help. Because the man or woman behind the help is somebody with whom we could do a trip. But, you know, in many trips, you got to choose your partner. you got to choose who you're going to travel with. Mm. And when the trip goes fine, and no problem comes up, it's easy to get along. The problem happens when something goes wrong. 
And that's when you really see the different breeds of entrepreneurs. And so we like to really understand whether, you know, at some point in time, over five-year, six-year investment time, something will go wrong. And you need to make sure that we really feel comfortable being able to work with those people for the benefit of the company. So for us, that part is important. The last part is what you mentioned before, the last uh, let's say specificity, is we are hands-on entrepreneur. And it's not just a bid, it's an ask. What I mean by that, not only we offer our help, uh, hands-on help, but we request to be able and provide that help Mm. because that is the way that we can ensure that together with our partner entrepreneurs, we maximize the alpha and minimize the beta of any investment. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? You know, we sit on boards, we chair boards, but let's be honest, no company has ever been managed by a board. Companies are managed by management teams. They're managed by founders or entrepreneurs. So what we like to do is actually sit alongside an entrepreneur and his management team and work together, bringing our experience because we have been there, we have done it. And so bring that experience to the service of the company and create that environment where we have a vision of where we want to go, And then everybody knows what we're going to do over the next 12 months. No financial engineering, no leverage, no debt, because we don't do that. Mm. But simply honest, hard work in the business and for the sake of the business. As an example, contrary to many other of our colleagues, we don't like crafts. We don't like put sort of two different classes of shares and citizenship, as I would call them, in a company. If we invest in a company, we want to invest in the exact same instrument as our partner entrepreneur. No additional rights, no additional, just same thing. We are in this together, and we're going to go out of this together the way is best for the company. That, for us, is very important. That's what we call an honest partnership. You know, I I find it really interesting. And, man, I mean... I'm sitting here just taking notes of more questions and more questions I want to ask, but <laughs> I, let me just jump on this one. Do sure. you take heat from your LPs, from your limited partners who say, I want you to get more skin in that game? I mean, if you you better be taking prefs because this is my money. And, or, you know, what is that dialogue like when you're raising money from your partners and you say, no, we, we're on the same common shares as our, as our partner investees? How does that conversation go? Look, in fact, I think that we have created a pool of investors around us that know us, that trust us, and the ultimate judges based on the results and not based on the instruments that we use to get to the results. Mm-hmm. Our philosophy is very simple. For us, the most important, and I think our website, tvcp.com, is a good example to really understand our philosophy. If you look at our website, it's not a website that is destined to LPs. It's a website that is destined and directed to entrepreneurs and companies that might want to use our help and might want to see us as our partners. Why? It's very simple. Ultimately, this private equity is a business where if you do great deals and find great companies to invest with, you will always find the money. Money is not easy. Money is a commodity today. However, you can have the best LPs you want and you can have all the money you want if you don't find deals. What are you going to do with it? Mm. So we put targets, entrepreneurs, and companies first. And our investors know it. And they actually realize that if we do that and we're single-mindedly focused to do what is right for the companies we invest in, the return is going to come. 
they understand our philosophy. I cannot come to you and propose you a partnership if I immediately become traveling first class and I put you in economy. Mm. That is not a partnership. That is, I am on the driving seat and I got a different class of share and I'm going to get a liquidity preference and I'm going to get my money out before you do. This is your company. That doesn't fly. That's certainly contrary to a lot of uh, Silicon Valley term sheets. And I respect and I'm not suggesting that we are more or less successful than other people. Here, it's a matter of beliefs. We try to truly play the game of partners. And we think that the best way to play a game of partner is to be on an even ground. We have the same rights. We have the same obligation. We work together. We are in this together. And we will get out of this together the way it works best for the company. If you start introducing financial engineering or uh, what I would call legal engineering in your terms, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to do that. It's, It's very interesting. We put in an offer a few days ago, literally, on a company in the personal care world. company is based in the UK, but actually has most of its business in the US. Interesting enough, the entrepreneur, when he received our term sheet, said, you know, is this all? Yeah. Yeah, it's a one-pager. You don't really need much more than that, because frankly speaking, you know, it's a pretty simple investment. No pref, no leverage. We're going to work on this together. These are the requirements that you have to be able to help you. You know, does it make sense or not? And we'll yeah. see whether it works or not. But we try to stick to that belief. Wow. I appreciate that. I mean, you, you know, you hear some horror stories of, uh, well, terms which you, you need a PhD in calculus to, to figure out what the hell is going to happen in a year from now, especially if another investor steps in or whatever. I mean, it just, it gets right out of hand. So that's refreshing. That's really neat. Well, we try to stick to that. And, you know, for now, it has been working and serving us well, both with companies, entrepreneurs, as well as with LPs. So so for the – a couple of of questions to spin out of this. For the the investments you're making now, those pearls that you find, what's got you most excited about them? What – you know, what are you seeing – or what were they seeing that they were able to present to you that you looked and said, that's going to work? I would say, again, the fact that they're different, they got a different positioning, they got a point of difference versus their competitors, for us, is always the number one factor that attracts us. It's not the only one, it is not enough but certainly is the one that call our attention. So being can, can you expand on you know what is different or any examples? I'm very curious. Look, I'm gonna I'm gonna make you laugh because uh, <laughs> as an American, you laugh about this. One of our investment, it's actually the most recent investment. It's an investment that goes back about a year ago. Is we acquired roughly forty five percent of Domino's Pizza, right. Italy. So the master franchisee for Domino's Pizza in Italy. And then, you know, I get this question all the time from investors and say, are you guys a bit crazy? You're going to try and sell pizzas to the Italians, Domino's Pizza to the Italians. An American pizza, yeah. Yeah, and we are actually being successful. It's an interesting thing. And why are we being successful? And what is different about Domino's Pizza in Italy? Because people don't understand very often the first side that point. Well, let me put it this way. The investment thesis is very simple. Italy is the second largest market in the world 
for pizza consumption per capita after the U.S. So there's a lot of pizza out there. Italy has 44,000 pizzerias around practically each corner of every street in every town across the country. So competition is fierce. However, what do we offer? We offer the best pizza at home. So we have carved a very specific niche, which is Domino's niche, of service, which gives us a complete edge. And let me elaborate on that. Another piece of data on the Italian market. Italy is the smallest, but the fastest growing market for food delivery at home. So Mm -hmm. we're riding a positive and fast growing wave. And working with Domino's, which is the most successful and largest pizza chain in the world since a number of years, is giving us all the benefits of learnings of 18,000 restaurants around, I don't know how many countries around the world that are there to avoid us making mistakes. Hmm. So we have this back protection from this company. And here is the story. When we go and test our product, if we go and test our product right out of the oven in a restaurant, we'll probably lose against many of those corner pizzerias in the country. However, when we take that, those two products, the products from the pizzeria around the corner and Domino's product, and consume it in real-life conditions, so at home, around 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 25 minutes after the order has been placed, we win hands down against the vast majority of them. And huh. why is that? Because the product is designed, conceived, built, and delivered for that specific experience, single-mindedly focused to that. Absolutely. You know, the yeah. dough is different. It's lighter because it levitates throughout the delivery process. The mozzarella has a certain content of fat, so it doesn't look like a shoe sole when it gets to your home, but it's real <laughs> mozzarella. Or the box that we use to deliver allows you, which is patented, allows you to deliver a pizza which is 20 degrees warmer than any other box out there. So what we like about this investment and what we find incredibly attractive is that you have a differentiated point in a large, fast-growing market where there's a lot of players, but you're different. So we try to look to those specificity which might not be apparent at first sight, yep. but they're there. Yeah. You know, I, I would have never thought about the technology in a pizza that well, makes for a differentiating and defensible factor and part of the investment thesis. That's absolutely. really interesting. That's very cool. And by the way, Corey, since you come from the tech world, you should know and your audience should know that if uh, the two of us had invested $1,000 in Domino's Pizza share of stock, either 15 or 10 or five years ago, we would have made more money than by putting those same $1,000 into Apple. No kidding. And look at the graph. Wow. So, oh. you know, sometimes there are, there are actually pearls that are under our nose, but we don't necessarily see that. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Uh, let's, I, I'm just looking at time. I, I want to be respectful sure. of yours. Where to go from here? I guess there's, there's two questions and one's actually not quite connected at all, but I, I do, I'm curious to ask it. When and, and who have you been most impressed by in your career? You know, what were those characteristics? Were they a mentor to you? Were they a colleague? Were, you know, who's really impressed you? Because I mean, you've, you've got an outstanding career. So I'm curious to who that person would be. 
Look, I would say that one of the persons that, that certainly marked me the most and, that, and to whom I owe him the utmost respect is an American businessman. He's the, gen, he's a, he's the former co-founder of Apollo and the founder of Ares, a gentleman named Tony Ressler. Tony, I've had the pleasure of working with Tony on Samsonite, where Ares was the lead investor. And from that day, we created a long-term relationship. We've done a few investment, personal investments together. But most importantly, he's been extremely supportive of me and has been an investor of mine since Fund One, since the very beginning of my activity. Tony is somebody to whom I owe a lot of respect because in spite of being one of the most successful and iconic character in private equity, he has remained extremely humble, very focused and honest in what he does, very generous with people around him that work with, for him, and has been a model of ethics and conduct in business that I've very carefully observed in all the interaction that we've had throughout the years that we've been knowing each other. I've always learned from him. I've always learned consistency. I've always learned sharpness. I've always learned honesty and integrity. And I've always learned generosity in the way he treats the people that work with him, the companies he has invested in, the management teams that he works with. And to me, that is priceless. Observing such a successful man from close by has certainly marked me. And, you know, I certainly don't have the aspiration of becoming the next Harris because, you know, it ain't going to happen. But I certainly have Tony and what he has achieved as a light out there and as an inspiration in what we do. Wow. Very interesting. It's what great remarks for him as a, as, as a North Star for you, in, in essence, right? That's very interesting. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure, Corey, you spotted that the, in this specific case, the man comes before the businessman, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. Absolutely. I admire yeah. and respect, first and above all, his human quality as a man and individual. And obviously, those qualities that clearly served him extremely well in his business life. Hmm. Wow. Marcello, as we wrap up here, uh, a final question is, is what's next for EVCP and for you? And then perhaps we'll end on how people can follow your work and connect with you. Sure. We're certainly ready to deploy money. We got, you know, COVID, as I said before, and it's somehow a sad thing to say, considering the amount of damage that is being done to the economy and the amount of people that are suffering. But if you take a a slightly cynical view and you look at the business aspect, COVID is going to offer some incredible opportunities for investment. Mm. Companies that have great entrepreneurs that have been temporarily struggling during COVID that need not only cash to continue, but also help because maybe the entrepreneurs is 28, 30, 32 years old. And, uh, you know, when 9-11 happened, he was a kid. And so he hasn't reacted to that. He doesn't know how to react to that. It just needs the help to get to the next stage. So there are plenty of opportunities there. So we're eagerly looking to deploy that money. And, uh, you know, we're a fast deployer. We deployed uh, six investments in a year, in two years and a half, sorry. And we certainly look forward to deploying quickly. Frankly speaking, what is important is to make good investment. It's not how many investments and how many funds we raise. It's really to basically be here 
be there and leave a mark as a great boutique fund specialized in its space. Hmm. I appreciate your insights. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I'll put links to EVCP in the show notes. And as a final thought or a final note is, how can people connect with you and your company and start to build those relationships potentially for capital or for opportunities? Look, for us, I think the website is definitely the best place. First of all, it gives a pretty good idea of who we are, what we do, which investments we've done. And that is usually self-explanatory. And then within the website, there is ways to connect with us. And, you know, we'll obviously be extremely honored and and feel privileged of being, you know, in contact with potential entrepreneurs or people that actually believe in what we do. Fantastic. Marcello, thank you so much for your time. Corey, thank you for your time. It was a great conversation. On behalf of EVCP, this podcast provides examples of how EVCP partners up with entrepreneurs in the consumer goods industry. Entrepreneurs are welcome to reach out to discuss how they could collaborate. This podcast does not discuss all investments made by EVCP and its principles in the past. It is also not an offer to sell or the solicitation to buy an interest or shares in any investment fund managed by EVCP or its affiliates. Any such offering will be made solely by means of confidential private placement memorandum and only to qualified investors in jurisdictions where permitted by law. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.